listening to the Bible 126 show. As you may know, one of my personal desires is to get through the Torah before we have the rapture, right? We've done Genesis and Exodus. We've explored some portions of Leviticus in our study of the book of Hebrews. Um, I want to get to Deuteronomy because that's the one the Lord quoted from the most in the scripture. But that leaves us a bridge called the book of Numbers. And so with your patience and forbearance, we'll uh, begin a, a survey uh, of the book of Numbers. We have sometimes a tendency to get bogged down in detail. On the other hand, uh, uh, it's sometimes interesting to see what God has hidden away here for our learning. And again, my uh, my interest and desire and motivation would be to prompt you to do your own research, your own digging, uh, making discoveries in the privacy of your own study through the power of the Spirit is one of the most exciting things that can happen in your life. I, some of the most exciting moments of my own life, which has been somewhat adventurous in many ways, has been in the privacy of my study with something where the Lord has shown something that, uh, that, that joy of discovery. So it's in that spirit we'll attack the book of Numbers, um, but with my encouragement to have you uh, supplement these evenings uh, with your own uh, uh, background reviews. Those of you that are have the, the desire and the... Oh, first of all, at the top of your pad, upper right-hand corner, Acts 17.11, right? Where Luke admonishes you not to believe anything Chuck Missler tells you. And that's right there in the 11th verse of the 17th chapter of Acts. And so uh, with that, in that spirit, we'll go forward. Those of you that might like to do a little background, sometimes these studies are more rewarding if you uh, take the time during your week to do a little background. And obviously reading the chapters that we have read and will be, and you're anticipating, is useful. But something else you might do for those of you that are interested, and that would be to read the book of Exodus. Skim it through, review it any way that you're comfortable with, because uh, that's essential background. Uh, the, our study of the book of Numbers will presume that you uh, have the the book of Exodus fresh in your mind, because it picks up where Exodus left off, and uh, the books have much in common. Book of Numbers. The, we, we call it the book of Numbers because that's the translation of the title given the book in the Greek Septuagint translation. And indeed, it mentions two of the three censuses, or numbering, of the people. And uh, one occurred in Exodus 30, and then there's one, uh, there's two of them in uh, in the book of Numbers, for which which... In the Septuagint translation, they, they uh, gave that its name. It's unfortunate, really, because that, in some respects, is incidental to the book. The Hebrew name, okay, which is Bamidmar or something like that, um, is, means in the wilderness. The book of Numbers is actually a chronicle of uh, the wilderness wanderings, uh, the, uh, the years that they were, they were uh, in penal wanderings. They had a chance, as, as we all know, to enter the land and uh, blew it. And uh, there's many lessons in that. The book is very, very useful for you and I, because most of us find ourselves in the wilderness. I mean, I don't know how your business was last year, but boy, I think we had a New Year's, we welcomed New Year's this year with an unusual zest, because this year I promises to be much better than last year. We've had some I think not just us, but every place I go, I see people have had, had troubles of all kinds. And, uh, but also in the spiritual sense, we find ourselves in the wilderness. And uh, it, uh, the, the, the lessons here are not just uh, part of Israel's history, part of a 
you know, we would be justified in digging into it just to understand better this strange people that God has elected and uh, used to be his instrument in, in uh, providing his redemption of all mankind and the earth and the heavens and that's all and on it goes um, but it's more than that the, the book is here for our learning so as we go we will not be surprised to learn first of all some fascinating things behind every little nook and cranny there's some meaning that you may or you know you hopefully will uh, be increasingly sensitive to but also as we go there's some important lessons the book, although it's a book of the Torah and the Old Testament, it has uh, at least four major types of Christ. There's probably seven, but I'll start with four. Let you find the other three. Huh? Instinctively, we know that there's seven, you know, but there's four obvious ones. The bread of life will be in here in chapter 11. The water of life in uh, chapter 20. The fact that the, the, the lifting up uh, the brazen serpent and so forth in chapter 21. And also the star out of Jacob in uh, chapters 24. So we'll be encountering those and exploring uh, both the relevance in the Old Testament, but also how the New Testament writers, uh, John, Luke, Paul, and Corinthians, and so forth, use these examples to prefigure, indeed, uh, Jesus Christ. The first word of the book is and. I thought I'd point that out to you. You can underline that. You're chuckling, huh? It's okay. All books of the Torah... That connect uh, uh, start with and, and when you see that word and, that should remind you that this is not five books of Moses, but one book in five parts. The Torah or the Pentateuch, if you will, the five books of Moses, as they're commonly called, um, are a unit. How do we know? Because Jesus, in effect, said so. Now, you can, if you if you if you have um, exposure to many modern uh, commentaries on the Torah, you'll find there's the thing called the documentary hypothesis. Uh, the egos of certain intellectuals, particularly in uh, Germany in a certain period, uh, uh, fostered an idea that the five books of Moses were actually written by different authors, and they tear the text apart and try to ascribe its stylistic differences to various writers. The use of the different names for God are described as as being evidences of different scribes. And that's all malarkey. How do I know? You can spend a lot of time, by the way, chasing the documentary hypothesis if you really you know, uh, want to get into that. But uh, uh, those of us, to me, the book has no meaning without Jesus Christ. And if you have come that far in your insight and understanding is to recognize who Christ was, and uh, or I should say who he is, excuse me, um, that he was that he was who he said he was is what I'm trying to say. Um, once you know that, then these issues of textual criticism evaporate, because he quoted from each of the books and ascribed it to Moses, and I figure he ought to know. And so uh, I'm going to spare you <coughs> mountains of notes on textual criticisms and things which are uh, have several defects, not being very material or relevant, but even more so happen to be wrong. So. I'll spare you some of that. So, and the Lord spake. So it connects with the previous book. Okay, that's the idea there. Um, take the first verse. And the Lord spoke unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of the congregation, on the first day of the second month in the second year after they were come out of the land of Egypt. Okay, 
Now, this is the third month after the Exodus. In contrast to chapter 19 of Exodus, if you want to chase it down. And they st- they're here until the 20th day of the second month of the second year. We'll have that corroborated when we get to Numbers 10, for those of you that might be interested in all of that. We'll have more to say about how the book is organized and some of its peculiar problems. We'll take those as we encounter them later on rather than get uh, bogged down right now. Verse 2, Take ye the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel after their families, by the house of their fathers, with the number of their names, every male, by their poles. Apologize to you women's livers, but uh, it is what it is. Um, This is a census, a numbering of the people. It happens three times, in Exodus 30, here and in chapter 26 of the book of Numbers, on three occasions. Once relevant to uh, raising a tax, and uh, once here in organizing the armies, and we're going to get into some of that tonight and perhaps make some discoveries that may you might find amusing or interesting. And uh, then, of course, in preparation into the, con- the, the, the conquest of Canaan, entering the, the promised land. Three numberings. Okay. <clears throat> now, they take every male by their poles from 20 years old and upward. So if you're under 20, it didn't count. Why do you suppose that was there? Go to war. Yeah, the, 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 the overtone here, it may have many significances, as these things usually do. But the first overtone the, 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 is, is the, the notion that we're seeing an army getting organized. We're going to see the army numbered. We're going to see it organized into groups. And we're going to uh, encounter its order of march and so on. And to give you a feeling, by the way, You'll discover when we number these, it adds up to about 600 men over 20. It's from that and some other considerations that most scholars estimate this group of people wandering around the wilderness for 40 years to be numbered somewhere between 2 and 3 million. That's a bunch, okay? It's not, I'm not sure what the population of Israel is today, but it wasn't long ago that that was about the population of Israel to, you know, in recent times. That's a lot of people. And uh, you can, as we go through the encounter, Moses's frustration. I don't know if you've visited Israel much, you know, but if you've mixed much with what what's going on in Israel or follow it through the Jerusalem Post. But I cannot think of any more onerous task than be the ruler of that people, you know. And when you hear Moses uh, throw up his hands and say, "Yeah, boy, they," you know, uh, you can you can you can uh, you can get a feeling for it. And the thing that's interesting is he had them in a wilderness context. Tough stuff. And uh, we'll talk more about that as we go. But so you get this. It isn't some quaint group of a few dozen or something. Or, you know, you think of the 12 tribes, 12 sons of Jacob. And you figure, OK, they had some descendants. And you, you sort of visualize something of the scope of a movie. Uh, one of the well done episodes of all of this. Well, uh, that doesn't tell the half of it. Um, uh, but we'll get into that a little further as we go. Okay, from 20, verse 3, from 20 years old and upward, all who are able to go forth to war in Israel, thou and Aaron shall number them by their armies. That is, you, Moses, and Aaron. Okay? It won't be Aaron the next numbering. It'll be somebody else. But anyway, uh, this one is the one that Aaron helps with. 
And with you there shall be a man of every tribe, every one head of the house and his fathers. And these are the names of the men who shall stand with you. Of the tribe of Reuben, Elizur, the son of Sheder, of Simeon, and here's a bunch, and we're going to go through all his names, and you'll discover how clumsy my pronunciation is. And if anyone wants to do better, I'll take volunteers. Um, Shalumiel, the son of uh, Zerishaddai. Now, uh, Zeri, I forgot what that means, but Shaddai, you all know El Shaddai. means the breast, technically, but what it also speaks of is the Almighty. El Shaddai, God the Almighty. There are many of the names of God. Of Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab. Now, Nashon is an interesting guy because he is in. He's not only of the tribe of Judah, he's in the royal, the messianic line. He is the father of Salmon, who marries Rahab the harlot in Jericho, <coughs> who gives birth to Boaz, who marries Ruth, and you, know, you all know the story. So that's just an aside. Relax, I don't have a story about each one. I just pick it. Okay. Of Issachar and Nathaniel, the son of Zuar, and of Zebulun, uh, Eliab, the son of Helon, and of the children of Joseph, Ephraim, uh, of, of Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud, of Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur. Now, here we have Joseph in two tribes. Now, this isn't just two parts of a tribe. The two sons of Joseph become each a tribe. What's the difference between a tribe and a family? Is that Jacob adopted them. If you recall, Joseph went to Egypt, had two children, Ephraim and Manasseh first, Ephraim the second, Ephraim was the younger. And later on when Jacob, they're all united, Joseph presents his two sons, that is Jacob's grandsons, and he adopts them as his in effect, and he blesses them, but he crosses his hands, blessing the younger ahead of the older, which offends Joseph, because it's the right of the firstborn. But Jacob knows what he's doing. And indeed, uh, we'll see as we go through, is that Ephraim is blessed above Manasseh. But the one thing you should pick up as we go here is to recognize there are not 12 tribes of Israel, there are 13. Because the tribe of Joseph splits into two, in effect. Um, there are times when if you want 12 tribes and you want to count Levi, then you, use it, you speak of the tribe of Joseph. If you want 12 tribes and you set Levi aside because they don't go to war. The Levites were not members of the army. They were, not so, they, were there to, they were committed to the tabernacle and the things of God and so forth. So there were occasions, as we'll see, where you need 12 tribes that you want to count Levi. No problem. Then you count Joseph as two, Ephraim and Manasseh. But your, your difficulties with the 12 tribes will evaporate once you realize there are actually 13. Now, um, in uh, 1 Chronicles 5, it's, it highlights the idea that the firstborn gets a double portion. And the rights of the firstborn accrued to Joseph. And he got the double portion that is, uh, became two tribes in effect. Um, now, something else, it's kind of interesting that the tribes, the 12 tribes, as we'll call them, don't you recognize I'll speak of the 12 tribes, despite what I've just gone through, because that's the, the idiom, the 12 tribes of Israel, for lots of reasons. 
some that may surprise you. How many signs are there in the zodiac? Twelve. How many tribes are there? How many sons of Jacob? Twelve. Not a coincidence. Designed that way. If, if Jacob had had 13 sons, we'd have 13 signs of the zodiac. I'll come back to that. The mats are off. Because believe it or not, it pertains. Um, sort of. Um, it's interesting that the 12 tribes are numbered classically 20 times in the Old Testament. 12 times in the Torah. It's in the Genesis uh, at least three times, Exodus once, in Numbers one, two, three, about six times, and Deuteronomy twice. Twelve times the Torah, eight other times. Joshua 13, Judges 5, First Chronicles three times, Ezekiel 48, and then Revelation 7. Excuse me, I said, uh, I mean the Bible, not just the Old Testament. Counting Revelations listing in, in chapter 7. You may recall all this from the Revelation study because in Revelation 7 where the 12 tribes are listed, the tribe of Dan is omitted. You miss that unless you're watching because there's 12 tribes. Why? Because there's 12 of the 13. And it's a little strange there because it speaks of Manasseh and Joseph. And what the Holy Spirit is doing is speaking of Manasseh and Ephraim, but he doesn't mention Ephraim by name. It's sort of including him, obviously, but not giving him the benefit of his own tribal name. Why? Because Dan and Ephraim were the tribes by which idolatry entered Israel. and uh, Or at least that's the, the, the view. In each of the listings of the tribes, they're in a different order. Here, you have the five, <clears throat> the five sons of Leah first, then the sons of Rachel. So you got the natural mothers first. Then the handmaids, one of Bilhah, two of Zilpah, and one of uh, Bilhah. Now, one of the things I will leave you to do, because it's too, it sounds too corny if I just tell you what happens. You need to work this out for yourself. I encourage you, though, if, you're, if the Spirit leads you, to go through Genesis, and it's roughly uh, in uh, the 30s, I think. I've forgotten exactly which verses. But if you go into the book of Genesis, where these kids are born, to Leah this and Rachel this, and then the handmaid, I mean to Leah first, Rachel's barren, so she gives, according to the Code of Hammurabi at the time, it was appropriate for barren mother to give her handmaid to the to the head of the household to raise progeny to keep the family going. That was the way things were done. There was nothing strange. That was just what they did do. So he, she gives her her handmaid. Leah thinks that's a pretty good idea. If Rachel can pull it off, I will too. So she, so anyway, and of course, Rachel, of course, eventually bears herself. Well, and dies obviously in childbirth. But um, the point is, in each of those passages, the name of the child has a meaning. And what I encourage you to do is take the 12 names, List by them the name, what the in most of your study Bibles will explain. First of all, it says in the text to some extent, but also your marginal notationals tell you what the name means. Then what you do is go through the twenty listings in the Scripture, and when they're changed the order, make a sentence out of the meaning of the names, and you'll find it's different each time. That's kind of fun, and so I'll leave that with you to do it because. Uh, It'll either mean a lot to you or you'll think Missler's nuts. <laughs> Both are probably true. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, moving right along. We got down to verse... I was ducking some of these pronunciations, I think. I think that, okay. Down about verse 15, right? I didn't get that far? No, I didn't. Oh, no, yes, right, 10. All right. Uh, yes, yes, okay, good enough. Uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, we got... Of uh, Benjamin... 
uh, Abidan, the son of uh, Gideoni, of Dan, Ahiazer, the son of of Asher, Pegiel, the son of Akron, of Gad, another unpronounceable. And by the way, each, I shouldn't really get, be so cavalier with these names. I'm just not uh, competent to pronounce them properly. But each one has the name of, almost all of them have the name of God in them. El is the name of God. And each one of these names has a meaning. And, uh, 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 you know, a good authority will help you with that if you want to track each one of those down. Uh, of Naphtali, uh, Ahira, the son of... And then we'll talk more about the 12 tribes. I have another occasion later to to get into this. So, uh, But anyway, each each tribe is now represented by a representative to, to facilitate the numbering here. Verse 16. These are the renowned of the congregation, princes of the tribes of their fathers, the head uh, heads of the thousands in Israel. So these are the princes, the 12 princes that come forth to uh, participate in this census. Moses and Aaron took these men who are mentioned by their names. They assembled all the congregation together on the first day of the second month, and they declared their lineage after their families by the house of their fathers, according to the number of the names, from 20 years old and upward, by their poles. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. And the children of Reuben, Israel's eldest son, by their generations... Um, by the house of their fathers, according to the number of their names, by their poles, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go forth to war. Those who were numbered of them, and it would go on. They're doing this at the wilderness of Sinai. The the next numbering will occur at the plains of Moab. Two different numberings. You'll hear about the plains of Moab later. This is the one at Sinai. Okay. Now, the children of Reuben. One of the things that I would encourage you to do, and again, this is one of those exercises that will mean more to you for you to do your own research than for me to, you know, package it for you. I encourage you to take the 12 tribes, take a notebook, and take it 12 pages, pieces of paper, and make one for each tribe, and do a study on your own of uh, each of the tribes. And and the specific references I have, you might start with each where they're born. Start in Genesis where they're born, get the name. But then the other key passage, there's a couple of key passages that summarize all 12 by name. One of the really important ones is in Genesis chapter 49. If you go through this exercise, I'm suggesting taking a page for each tribe and, and following its origin where the where the first child was born, and then following it through, you will encounter, as you go through the scripture, an occasion, Genesis 49, where the old man, Jacob, leaning on his staff, but it's almost like a deathbed scene, I mean, it's sort of his farewell to his 12 sons, he gives a prophecy for each of the 12. Some of the prophecies are really quite cryptic. Candidly, it would take some research to have some meaning there, and I encourage you to either avail yourselves of, of library resources here, or alternatively, get the Genesis tapes and review. We went through that in some detail, as I recall, in Genesis 49, where we went through each one of these. Some of them are really quite important prophecies. This is where there's a prophecy of the tribe of Dan that uh, we think is very significant in its support of the book of Revelation. 
There's the lengthiest prophecy is on Judah. And uh, 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 there's some remarkable passages there. And uh, uh, so as you follow, as you go through Genesis, follow the, 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 the exploits of the different uh, sons, uh, they will impact their tribes. Another key passage, Genesis 49 is one of them. The other one is Deuteronomy 33. In Genesis 49, it's Jacob talking about the 12 tribes. In Deuteronomy 33, Moses has occasion, takes occasion, to comment on each of the 12 tribes. And uh, there are other passages, but those are two big pivotal ones. And uh, your, your understanding of the Old Testament will be much richer and uh, clearer if you really get a feeling for these 12 tribes. And, and uh, some of them, of course, are quite prominent. Others, uh, maybe not so much. Reuben lost his dignity. And, and uh, he, uh, you'll see that uh, he, he's not numbered very strongly here. We're going to talk more about these tribes in a minute, but uh, we'll just go through them here. Reuben's the first one mentioned. Um, of the children of Simeon. By their generation, after their families, by the house of their fathers, uh, those who were numbered among them according to the number of their names, by their poles, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go forth unto war. <clears throat> Simeon turns out, when we get to, to, uh, num- to the next numbering in Numbers 26, we'll discover that Simeon is pretty decimated by sin, very diminished by sin. In fact, Simeon is one of the tribes not mentioned by Moses in his summaries of the tribes in Deuteronomy 33. But moving on, verse 23, those who were numbered of them, every tribe of Simeon, were 59,300. Now, if you want to, you can track all these numbers, but I'll summarize them for you at the end because there's some interesting things about that. Of the children of Gad, by their generations, after their families, and the same passage, same words here, uh, according to uh, the, the number of their names from the 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go forth to war, those who were numbered of them, even the tribe of, of Gad, were four, 40 and 5,650. Okay. He sort of takes the place of Levi here in the order. Um, and he's also... Uh, where, uh, um, the way it's recorded here... It's tens rather than hundreds in the tribe of Gad. But, but uh, um, see, it's round. You see, you see that you don't see it in Hebrew, but you see it in the fifty. It's the only one that's fifty. All the rest are in hundreds. This is one in tens. That is, he's 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 got. We do the sums. He's the only one with a something less than a hundred in the in the summary here. Okay, uh, verse twenty-six of the children of Judah. By their generation, after their families, by the house of their fathers, according to the number of their names, from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go forth to war, those who were numbered of them, even the tribe of Judah, were threescore, 14,600. His number is the largest. Okay? It might be good. Let's just pause here in, the, in this. And we're reading a chronicle here, a record book, so it does, there's not a lot of... Uh, plot and so forth, but let's just turn to Genesis 49 to give you a flavor of what kinds of things are uh, in store for you if you take the occasion to do a little digging here. And I'll use Judah as the best example. Genesis 49, verse 1, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you when? In the last days. 
I mentioned that, so that should get your attention. This is ancient history. Jacob is looking ahead to our future when he sees what's going on here. And he goes on and, and he talks about them. And some of these are quite, um, gather yourselves together and hear ye sons of Jacob and hearken unto Israel your father. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might and beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed. Thou defilest thou it. He went up to my couch. He goes on. I was Reuben blew it. That's why he doesn't have the rights of the firstborn. See, theoretically, I mean, chronologically he was, but not by position. Firstborn is not just an order of birth. The firstborn, and let me, this is important, the firstborn is a position, it's a title. Jesus Christ, the firstborn of creation, you'll encounter that twice in the New Testament. In the letter to Colossians and the letter to Laodicea, because they're both suburbs, and that's an important link between those two letters. But the point is that's a strange title, because you think of Christ you know, not being born as preexistent, yes, but he has the position of being the firstborn. And uh, so understand that's a title. Anyway, we won't go through all of these. Simeon and Levi were very cruel. Each one of these ties to their history. But when we get down here to verse uh, 8, 9, and 10, uh, there's a Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. That's what the word Judah means. The word, see, it's a play on word. The word Judah means praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck, on the neck of the, in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Thy father's children shall bow, that is your brothers are going to bow down before you. And they do so in the, in the, in the person of David. Okay? And of course, the Messiah, but in both senses. Judah's a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched, crouched as a lion, as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? I want you to remember the idiom of the lion with Judah. One of the titles of Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. We see it none other than the book of Revelation. Who is he that is worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof? The seven-sealed book in the right hand. Some who sat on the throne. And John sobs convulsively because no man was no man was found worthy to open the book. And one of the elders said, "Weep not! Behold, the the uh, lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed; that is overcome, Nikao, uh, to loose the seals, so forth." And John turns and looks, and what does he see? A lion? No, he sees a lamb, as it had been slain. So there's two titles of Jesus Christ: the Lamb of God, that John the Baptist introduced him, the Passover label, the very Jewish label but also the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the royal label or title. We'll talk more about the Lion before the evening's over, but moving on. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh, this is a mess. It's not clear in the English, but it's a messianic passage. It speaks of the Messiah. Okay. And... Uh, I don't know where they get into the anecdote about the... Yeah, maybe I should. Um, the Maccabean princes um, yield to Herod the Great, who was Idioman. Remember, Herod was not Jewish, okay? And 
under the deposition of Archelaus. This isn't Josephus in his antiquities. And this is about uh, 7 AD in the reign of Caponius. The, the, because of that deposition, they lost the right to capital punishment under the Romans. Herod ruled by sufferance of the Romans, but they lost the right to capital punishment. Because they didn't have that right, that explains the antics of the high priest and all of this when they, when they arrested and, and had the mock trial of Jesus Christ. Because they didn't have the authority to put him to death. They had to get it from, from Pontius Pilate. But you need to understand, now, what, what, what's not obvious, unless you're a rabbinical student, is the withdrawal of the capital punishment was the equivalent of that was to them the recognition of their loss their, uh, the loss of the right to rule all kinds of other things they're going to do but the loss of that was regarded by the high priests as a major theological event and they, Josephus records the, or the Talmud the Babylonian Sanhedrin um, records the high priests the priests at that time, put on sackcloth and ashes, and wandered through, you know, marched through Jerusalem, be, bewailing their belief that the word of God had been broken. Because of this passage, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until the Messiah comes. The scepter had departed from Judah because of the because of this deposition. So they went through Jerusalem saying, Woe unto us, for the scepter has been taken from Judah, and Shiloh has not come. That's what they proclaimed as a matter of record. What they didn't know was, up in Nazareth, there was probably a 12-year-old boy in his father's carpenter shop, preparing for the ministry. So it's um, kind of interesting, because Shiloh had come, they just didn't know it. Interesting, though, how they took that seriously enough to do that, and yet still did not recognize him. Well, a few did. Simeon did in the temple. Well, anyway, you can go through each one of these. Uh, verse 17 is important for your students of Revelation. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in his path, and that biteth his, the horse's heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. Now, buried in that riddle is a whole study that re is one of the reasons that some scholars believe that the Antichrist will come out of the tribe of Dan. Or at least there will be some relationship there. And the tribe of Dan is singled out by the Holy Spirit throughout the Scripture. In every list, he is given, in some subtle ways, some not so subtle, the back of the hand. But that's another study. Uh, you can get, it, get, get into the uh, Revelation 7 tapes if uh, that's of interest to you. But we'll move on. In the meantime, we got down to uh, Judah, didn't we? Verse 26, back to Numbers 1. We're down to verse 28, I believe, of the children of Issachar, and the same phrase, by the generations and so forth, there were 54,400. Verse 30, of the uh, children of Zebulun, by their generations, after their families and so forth, uh, same words. It's, just a, it's, a, it's a formal record of the, of the numbering, of the census results, 57,400. Verse 32, of the children of Joseph, namely of the children of Ephraim, by their generations, and their families by the house of their fathers, according to the number of their names from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go forth to war, those who were numbered of them, 
even of the tribe of Ephraim, were 40,500. Of the children of Manasseh, by their generations, after their families, by the house of their fathers, according to the number of their name, of the names, 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go forth to war, those who were numbered of them, even the tribe of Manasseh, were 32,200. I'll come back to these numbers later, but the point is, here again, under the tribe of Joseph, we've got, you know, part A and part B, that is, you know, Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, and it's interesting, Joseph was in Genesis 49, we forgot to pick that up, verse 22, Jacob pre- predicts that of Joseph, he will be a fruitful vine. Indeed he is, he's out of him springs two full tribes. Um, Ephraim was the one that was blessed first. That all occurs in Genesis 48, the chapter before the one we explored. Um, now he he is mentioned first, and he is he's blessed more than Manasseh. <clears throat> in fact, uh, he's increased more than Manasseh. When we get later on, we'll discover that uh, Manasseh is diminished by eight thousand. So it's it's when we compare the two censuses, they come out roughly the same. But the tribal changes are are are, are instructive. Okay. Um, okay, Manasseh is the lowest number. Uh, he does increase by 20,500 in the journeys, but uh, we'll also come back to that. Okay, we're down to about what? Verse 38? 36, excuse me. Of the children of Benjamin, by their generations, after their families, and so on, those who were numbered of uh, them, even the tribe of Benjamin, were 35,400. Of the children of Dan, uh, and so on, we have uh, three score and 2,700. Of the children of Asher, uh, we have <clears throat> 41,500 of the children of Naphtali uh, throughout their generations after their families by the house of their fathers and so on, um, or 53,400. Naphtali is kind of interesting because Naphtali had more daughters than sons. In Genesis 49, again, if we went back to Genesis 49, in verse 21, you'll notice that Jacob refers to Naphtali as a female hind. And it's interesting that when we get to uh, the numbering in, in 26, the men died, but, the women, but what's implied in the Hebrew is that the women multiplied. So Naphtali had a, had a, had a, a larger number of women than men. Those who were born, uh, those, uh, we'll get through then, verse 44. These are those who were numbered, whom Moses and Aaron numbered, the princes of Israel being twelve men, each one was for the house of his fathers. So were all those who were numbered of the children of Israel by the house by the house of their fathers, from twenty years old and upward, all who were able to go forth to war in Israel, even all they who were numbered were six hundred thousand and three thousand and five hundred and fifty. I'll have occasion to come back to these numbers. Let's let's uh, keep moving here for the moment. But we'll come back to the the, the, the numbers in a moment. But the Levi now incidentally the tribe of Levi was not mentioned because they are not part of the army. They are numbered but differently. But the Levites, verse 47, But the Levites, after the tribe of their fathers, were not numbered among them, for the Lord had spoken unto Moses, saying, 
Only thou shalt not number the tribe of Levi, neither take the sum of them among the children of Israel. They're not part of the nation. They're committed to the Lord. See, he treats them as if they're not part of the, the nation proper, formally. But thou shalt appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of testimony and over all the vessels thereof and over all the things that belong to it. They shall bear the tabernacle and all the vessels thereof and they shall minister unto it and they shall encamp round about the tabernacle. And the tabernacle setteth forward, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And the stranger who cometh near shall be put to death. That's heavy stuff. Here they are in a camp, the camp context in the wilderness. They set up this linen fence, set up this peculiar portable structure. And, if, and there were many among them that were not Israel, Israelites. They're not numbered in the army. They're not allowed to fight their wars. But they do have a mixed multitude. If there's a Gentile among them and he goes near the tabernacle, he's put to death. That's serious stuff. And the children of Israel shall pitch their tents every man by his own camp and every man by his own standard throughout their hosts. And the Levites shall encamp round about the tabernacle of testimony that there be no wrath upon the congregation of the children of Israel and the Levites shall keep the charge of the tabernacle of testimony and the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses so did they I wish that was said more often in the scriptures very frequently they don't but here they manage okay now we're going to discover later but it'll serve some purpose now the the tabernacle was the center of the whole of the camp, and if you and, and uh, um, tabernacle's door opened which direction? Eastward. If you study Bible maps or or the Middle Eastern geo- geography, you and I always put what at the you aren't the math the, the map. So what's at the top? North. And we do that, and maybe you, and maybe it's better for you just to continue to do that. But if you're really going to study the ancient world, and it, you should understand, they always put east at the top, and uh, uh, all the, all the nations did sunrise kind of, I guess, idea. But the point is, is that east was at the top. So uh, be alert to that if you see uh, diagrams and sketches. Don't presume that north is at the top. But in that sense, the north, the tabernacle pointed towards the east. Moses and Aaron and the priests camped just to the east of the door of the tabernacle. They had the privileged place. The rest of the Levites were on the other three sides. The Kohathites were on the south side, the Gershonites on the west side, and the Merarites on the north side. So these three subgroups or families of the tribe of Levi were also uh, commissioned to uh, uh, take care of the tabernacle. The Gershonites, which camped on the west of the tabernacle, they took care of all the external coverings. The Kohathites, which camped on the south of the tabernacle, they took care of all the internal equipment, the furniture and stuff. Now, the official, this is just when they're in motion, taking it down, setting it up, that's what we're talking, and moving it. Once in place, the priests officiated, but the but the, in, the, in, the, in the case of the Gershonites, they, they took the uh, external 
coverings, the cothites, the internal equipment, the marrowites, the structural components. These, uh, you know, these poles and boards that were covered with gold and all that that makes up the tabernacle. Now, and then it's around that core group, figure the tabernacle and the Levites, and those three families, and Moses and, the high, and, the, and Aaron and the priests up front, and the rest of the Levites around. That was the tabernacle proper. Visualize that as a core center. Around that, we're going to assemble the 12 tribes, the army. Bear in mind, the Levites in the middle, they're not counted. The army, thus, the, the nation Israel, the men going to war, were in 12 tribes. And maybe the way to do this, let's get through chapter 2, and I'll come back and summarize. That might be the way to, uh, to uh, pull this off. Uh, by the way, the Levites were numbered separately. The Gershonites were about 7,500, the Kohathites 8,600, the Merarites 6,200. We'll encounter that, I think, later, a chapter two yet going. But I've got some reasons why I'm going to get into this business here shortly here, if I don't mess up. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. Maybe it is simpler. Since when do we want it simple? Now we'll go through chapter two. Chapter two, and then and that there's in this detail as you wait, you wander through this detail. There's all these nits and nats. One of the values is to stand back and put it in perspective. And I guess it's proper. But I can do that up front, but it's probably simpler. Let's go through it and then summarize. That's probably the way to do it. So let's go. chapter two. Um, verse one. And the Lord said unto Moses spoke unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Every man of the children of Israel shall encamp by his own standard with the banner of their father's house over and against the tabernacle of the congregation shall they encamp. Now you need to understand here that each tribe had a symbol, a sign. I'm going to come back to these signs in a minute. All 12 tribes did. We're going to also anticipate something can be confusing. While each member of a tribe belonged to a tribe and would camp by the standard, this presumably on a pole, some kind of the symbol of the tribe, uh, he would camp by that standard. Three tribes made up a camp. So you had four camps of three tribes each around the tabernacle. For, to give you an example, you're going to find the tribe of Issachar and Zebulun camped with Judah. So you had three tribes. Each had a standard. Issachar had a standard. Judah had a standard. And Zebulun had a standard. But the three of them collectively were called the camp of Judah. Judah was sort of senior. And he camped on the east side. You'd expect that. Judah's the privileged, messianic super guy. Largest number, by the way. But he camps to the east, the favor, the door end of the tabernacle, and the other two tribes with him. And then, well, I'll come to that, how they're spread out. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, they, 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 they spread out in each of the four directions. But there's three, three tribes make up a camp. There's four camps. But the camps take the name from the lead tribe in each of the three groups. Excuse me, each, the lead of each of each camp. There's four camps, three tribes each. But in each group of three, one is a lead, and his standard becomes 
the, the rallying point for those three tribes. Are we together? Okay. We're going to get in the chopper before the evening's over and fly over this thing. Moses didn't describe it that way, but you and I, in, the, in our mind's eye, are going to board a chopper and take a look at this thing, and we're in for some interesting surprises. But let's go through the chapter. Each man of the children of Israel shall encamp by his own standard, and the banner of their father's house over it against the tabernacle of the congregation shall they encamp. And on the east side toward the rising of the sun shall they of the, uh, they of the standard of the camp of Judah encamp throughout their armies. And Nashon, the son of Amminadab, shall be captain of the children of Judah. And his host and those who were numbered of them were threescore, fourteen thousand and six hundred. And those who do encamp next unto him shall be the tribe of Issachar. And if Nathaniel, the son of Zuar, shall be the captain of the children of Issachar. And his host and those who were numbered thereof were fifty-four thousand four hundred. And then the tribe of Zebulun and Eliab, the son of Helon. These are the same guys we read about before. I didn't pronounce them properly in chapter 1. I won't pronounce them any better in chapter 2. Uh, shall be the captain of the children of Issachar. And his host and those that were numbered thereof shall 54,000. And the tribe of Zebulun and Eliab, the son of Helon, shall be the captain of the children of Zebulun. And his host and those who were numbered thereof were 57,400. All who were numbered in the camp of Judah. See, now that's where it switches. See, if you're not alert. The camp of Judah are those three tribes, not just the tribe of Judah. You follow me? It's a simple thing, but if you're reading this yourself, you can get easily confused. And yet there's some real treasures here before we're all through. Those who were numbered in the camp of Judah were 100,000, fourscore, thousand, six, uh, uh, 6,400 throughout their armies. These shall first set forth, meaning this is the marching order. When they... You got, you got a, you know, a couple of million people. You got an army here of six hundred thousand. You don't just say, "Hey guys, follow me." You see, this is all organized. So the, the ones that march first are Judah and his camp, which are three tribes—not just the tribe of Judah, but these other two. Okay, now that takes care of the east side. Okay, now we're going to shift to the south. Okay, on the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben. This is the camp of Reuben, according to their families. And the captain of the children of Reuben shall be Elizur, son of Shadir, and his uh, host, and those who were numbered thereof were 46,500. Those who pitched by him shall be the tribe of Simeon, and the captain of the children of Simeon shall be Shelemiel, the son of Zerishadai. And his host, and those who were numbered of them, were 50 and 9,300. Then the tribe of Gad and the captain of the sons of Gad shall be Eliasaph, the son of Ruel. And his host who were numbered of them were 45,000. So all who were numbered in the camp of Reuben were 100,050 and 1,450 throughout their armies. And they shall set forth in the second rank. See, this is the second group of three tribes called the camp of Reuben. The thing that's useful here is to recognize that we've got rankings here. Not 12 tribes, but now four camps, okay? Verse 17, Then the tabernacle of the congregation shall set forward the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camp. As they encamp, so shall they set forward every man in his place by their standards. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim, according to their armies, and the captain of the sons of Ephraim shall be Elishama, the uh, son of Amihud. 
and his host and those who were numbered of them were 40,500, and by him shall the tribe of uh, shall be the tribe of Manasseh, and the captain of the children of Manasseh shall be uh, Gamaliel, uh, the son of Pedazur. And his hosts who were numbered of them were 32,200. Then the tribe of Benjamin, the captain of the sons of Benjamin, the Abidan, the son of Gideoni, and his hosts and those who were numbered of him were 35,400. All who were numbered of the camp of Ephraim. Here again, now we've got these three groups being the camp of Ephraim. Were 108,000 and 100 throughout their armies, and they shall go forward in the third rank. The standard of the camp of Dan shall be on the north side by their armies, and the captain of the children of Dan shall be Ahiazer, the son of uh, Amishadai, and um, his hosts, and those were numbered of them, were, uh, were threescore, 2,700. And those who encamp by him shall be the tribe of Asher, and the captain of the children of Asher shall be Pegil, the son of Akron, and his hosts, and those who are numbered of them were 41,500. And then the tribe of Naphtali, and the captain of the children of Naphtali shall be Ahira, son of Inan. And his host and those who are numbered with him were 53,400. All they who are numbered in the camp of Dan, again, those previous three tribes, were 100,050 and 7,600. They shall go last with their standards. So the, tribe, the camp of Dan is last in the, in, in the group here. These are those who were numbered of the children of Israel by the house of their fathers. All those who were numbered of the camps throughout their hosts were 600,000. 600,000 and 3,550. But the Levites were not numbered among the children of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses. And the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they encamped by their standards. So they set forward everyone after their families according to the house of their fathers. Now, okay. Now from here, we'll go to Genesis 1. Hope I can find it now. Okay. Genesis 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 14, I call your attention to. It says, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, right? We all know about that. There's day and night. We have a, okay. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Signs. You and I read that, and what we don't really understand is that that term for signs somewhere I have has to do with showing forth it's the I hate to do this from memory I'd rather lean on my notes because I'll mess up the Hebrew ah good Hebrew worth the word for signs is oth, which comes from the root meaning to come. There's signs of things to come. 
That's what that's that's what that language implies. Not just signs like, you know, sunrise, sunset, or something like cycles. That's obviously true. That is true. But they're also there for signs. Okay. Now. Um, Turn to Psalm 147. This is the risk when I look at the clock and I realize we've got a little margin here. We can really wander around here. Okay. So usually I've got, uh, I'm running for cover, but in this case we've got time to do a little bit of an excursion. Psalm 147, Verse 4. Now, by the way, before we start this, I didn't get a chance to dig into my library to find out, you know, how many stars are there? whole bunch. Yeah. <laughs> Uncle Rima say with 11 to 11, right? There are a lot of them. Um, a lot of stars. Just in our solar system, or uh, excuse me, in our galaxy. Just in our galaxy. There are more than you and I have the capacity to number. If you're scientific and you, you can use powers of ten and, you know, you can do things to hide the fact you can't <laughs> grasp that. And how many galaxies are And on and on. You know, how many stars are there? A lot. Psalm 147 verse 4 tells us something. He appointeth the number of the stars. They don't happen. You know, astronomers love to get into star births and deaths and novas and all this stuff. Great, okay, but whatever it is, God makes it happen. He appoints them. And he does something else that is a non-trivial task. He calleth them all by their names. Calleth all of them by their names. Now, you and I... I don't want to repeat a whole tape we did on the Matzeroth, but I, there's a little bit I want to touch on, so let me just review a little bit. If you're interested in what we're getting into here, there is a tape on this subject just where we spent, if you recall, an hour and a half summarizing lightly a study of the Matzeroth. That's the Hebrew equivalent of what you and I would call the Zodiac. Now, we all know about the Zodiac, right? There's 12 signs. Now, don't get all nervous. We're not getting into astrology here tonight. I want you to distinguish between astronomy, which is a valid, legitimate study of the heavens, and we're going to go into an archaeological orientation to astronomy here in a minute. Don't confuse that with astrology, which is a peculiar, deviant, cultic behavior that is, I'm not even getting into it. Don't misunderstand what we're getting into tonight. We know the zodiac by its Babylonian-derived names. So when I speak of the 12 signs of the zodiac, don't get all shook up, okay? There is a thing in the sky, which I'm, is the mean apparent path of the sun. That's called an ecliptic. There's also, an apparent, uh, uh, conceptually, a celestial equator. If you take our equator and ext- imagine the, the, world, the, the, the sky as a sphere, as it, as it appears to us in a sense, where our equator extended, that forms a celestial equator, right? The, the sun is at an angle to that. So the sun has a path through the sky that's at an angle to that. Its path is called the ecliptic, where the ecliptic and the 
the uh, celestial equator cross, we have what we call an equinox. The vernal equinox in the spring and the autumnal equinox in the fall. At that path where the sun is the most distant, we have a solstice, a winter and a summer uh, solstice. But the point is, the ecliptic in the sky is the path upon which there are 12 groups of stars. There's actually groups of groups of stars made constellations or groups of constellations. But the point is, there are 12 zones, if you will, equidistant, arbitrarily defined on the zodiac that have names. We know them by our actually Babylonian names. You and I have been brought up, scientific world has adopted, which are traditional names that go back not just centuries, but thousands of years. Now, the names we know... Well, back up a minute. Again. Josephus tells us, among others, that these 12 signs of the Zodiac, or the Matzeroth in the Hebrew, go back to the creation. The naming of these groups of stars were done by Adam, Seth, and Enoch. And for 2,500 years, that is before Moses, they were the record of God's plan. How do we know? Partly from records and partly by learning their Hebrew names. Scholars have pieced back together the names of these stars. And um, they go, they describe, they describe the gospel in their Hebrew names. You and I know, you, you've heard of Virgo. In the Hebrew, it's the Virgin. The brightest star in the constellation. In its Hebrew name is Tzemek, which means the branch. And if you go through the names of the brightest magnitude stars in the Hebrew names, you have a chronicle of God's plan in the gospel. Now, that's more than we can get into tonight. If you're interested in that, there is a tape that we did on this. What happened, of course, is those names, when we get to Genesis 11, we have the Tower of Babel, the Tower to God, El being God, Bab being a tower, the Tower of Babel, in which is the source of subsequent idolatry. And Babel, Babel becomes Babylon and so forth. The corruption that occurs by man and by Satan corrupts the original names and creates the names that you and I as victims of that cultural background, have for those stars and constellations. But the first thing to recognize is those, there's no way you can get those shapes by looking at the stars. Can you look at the, the Big Dipper and get a bear? Yeah, I defy it, you know, or, or, or some major... Or all. The point is, what you need to recognize is the names were arbitrary. And the little sketches you see on planetarium shows or in a, in a star book are just mnemonics to help you remember. You got, there's no way those things ever even... say, Well, the stars change their position. Nonsense. Those names were defined for them arbitrarily as mnemonics to learn a story. And the story was from Adam, Seth, and Enoch. It has to do with God's plan. It got corrupted at Babylon. Now... Um, the groupings are arbitrary. They're put up there where man can't screw it up. Um, let, me, let me also, we talked about Genesis. Turn to Psalm 19. 
I'm just going to give you highlights here. If this interests you, I'll encourage you to dig this out on your own. But Psalm 19 is my authority for all of this, in a sense. Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God. What's God's glory? The creation, secondary. His greatest glory is His redemption. And the story of His his redemption is in the stars. Heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth His handiwork. You know, I first heard this. You know, there are books around. There's about three or four of them I've seen on the stands. The Gospel in the Stars. When I first saw that stuff, I thought, that's got to be crackpot nonsense. Then I discovered the best-known, most authoritative book is by E.W. Bullinger, a Zurich theologian of great insight and interest. He's one of my favorite sources. A guy like Bullinger, is his book is Brett Best. I forget. They all have titles equivalent, The Gospel in the Stars or something. Um, J.A. Sice has a book on it. There's a couple of others that are perhaps more readable, not a scholarly. But uh, And basically what they do, they go in this scriptural background, and then they take the Hebrew names of the stars and the constellations, and when you start laying that... Oh, by the way, one of the things you get into the 12 signs is where do you start and end? It's continuous, right? But to tell a story, it starts and ends. Where does it start and end? It turns out between Leo and Virgo. There are scholars that believe that the Sphinx in Egypt is a monument to memorialize where to start in the Zodiac. The, the, the Sphinx is a woman and a lion joined as between Virgo and Leo that there's the reference point. The word Sphinx means to join. Okay? And that's not a big deal, but the point is you get into this is interesting stuff. But anyway, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto night uttereth speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. You can go to deepest Africa and look up. And the voice is there, in effect, see? Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them he hath set a tabernacle for the sun, who is like a, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth like a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven and a circuit unto the ends of it. There's nothing hid from the heat thereof. You know, I'm fascinated by this. I used to, as a kid, I think I ran into this when I was eight or nine years old, is that, you know, how quaint in the Bible. The sun goes, you know, everybody knows the sun doesn't go around the earth. Bible says, here's the, you know, it goes forth. It goes from one end of heaven to the other, a circuit into the ends of it. Everybody knows the sun doesn't move. We revolve and orbit around the earth, right? Wrong. Wrong. That's just what, you know, we rotate around our axis. We revolve around our axis. We rotate around the sun. Where's the sun going? In its galactic motion from one end of heaven to the other. Really is. I mean, you know, the psalmist wasn't blindsided here by modern Copernicus in his uh, motion. So whatever. Anyway, getting back to this, um, where I'm headed now is that um, this all starts in Genesis 3.15 when God declares war on Satan. And, uh, and he lays out and instructs Adam and Adam create, you know, has the 12, the 12 um, 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 signs in the sky. They're actually in groups of four. There's three books of four each, and they tell the story. And uh, that's as much as we have here tonight. I won't get into the Matzeroth. That's a whole separate study. I encourage, those of you that are interested can dig it out. 
However, I do want to remind you of our friend Joseph. And that, that little story occurred in Genesis um, maybe 37. I can't read my writing. Let's, just, let's hunt for it. Genesis 37. Yes. Remember Genesis 37. We have um, Joseph, the story of Joseph, the young guy that was favored by the father. He, he's the one that got the seamless robe, remember? It's always been mistranslated, coat of many colors, so it's the traditional thing, but it was apparently a seamless robe, but whatever. Um, and, of course, he, um, verse 3, Genesis 37, verse 3, Now Israel, that is, that's the synonym, if you will, for Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children. Because he was the son of his old age, he made him <clears throat> a long-sleeved, special-honored, seamless robe. Now, you need to understand that those things were not just garments. They were rank. And so this was uh, a sign, whether, Joseph, whether Jacob realized it or not, was uh, foreshadowing his rulership. Okay. Now, um, this made him very popular with his brothers. They thought this was really neat, the youngest kid getting spoiled rotten. Okay, Joseph dreamed a dream. Now, Joseph had a style. He never kept these dreams to himself, you know. Verse 5, he told to his brother, and here, here's what I dreamed. Behold, uh, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaf stood around about and made obeisance to my sheaf. That also endeared him to his brothers. They thought this was really neat. The young squirts got on a real ego trip here. Now, interesting, it all comes true, though, doesn't it? They do all worship him later. But anyway, his brethren said unto them, Thou shalt indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Both were error. You know, from far as they, they, they didn't have a lot to do with you. They didn't, uh, he dreamed yet another dream. Verse 9, told it to his brethren. He said, Be, I've dreamed a dream more. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren? See, the father recognizes the sun and moon as being he and his wife. See? And he gets a little umbrage here too. He says, uh, um, um, Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come down, bow down ourselves to thee on the earth? And his brethren envied him. But his father observed the saying. He father was offended by it, but tucked it away. Right? Now, why is this so important? Turn to Revelation 12. By the way, this really has a lot to do with numbers. Trust me. <laughs> Revelation 12 which some scholars feel is the most difficult chapter in the book of Revelation to, to, to uh, interpret or understand, is really not once you get over one obstacle. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Who is the woman? There's only one other place in the scripture you have twelve sun, moon, and twelve stars. We just read it in Genesis 37. No other place do you find that. In the scripture. Many scholars tried to make the woman in Revelation 12 the church. I love the way Chuck Smith puts it. 
if that if the church is the woman here, she's in deep trouble because she's pregnant. Church is the virgin bride of Christ, and this one is bearing child. No, no. The church is not the woman in Revelation 12. The woman in Revelation 12 is the nation Israel. Jacob identifies it for you in Genesis 37. The first concept, though, is it's not the zodiac. There's nothing occultic here. It's the Matzeroth. It's the sign of what? The 12 tribes. That's the only point we want to make here. We won't get into the rest of the details. Okay. Other than to recognize Jacob's 12 sons are linked to the 12 signs of the Matzeroth. Now, shifting gears a little bit. And those of you that want, incidentally, the zodiacal, zodiacal, or more properly, the Matzeroth sign of each tribe is the sign that was on the standard. My uh, authority is the Targum of Jonathan. Not in the scripture, but it's in, in the uh, rabbinical uh, commentaries. Twelve constellations of the Maseroth, twelve tribes. Each tribe had a sign. I won't use the Hebrew names because it wouldn't mean anything to you. I'll use, if you'll excuse me, the common names and the, the zodiac name. What do you think was the sign of Judah? Leo, in the in the zodiacal idiom. You're right, the lion, okay? Now, Zebulun was Virgo. Issachar was Cancer. Okay? So Cancer, Leo, and Virgo are the three on the east side. But when they camp on the east side, whose tribal standard do they camp under? Judah, the lion, right? Now we're going to swing around to the south. Here we have Simeon, Reuben, and Gad, Reuben being the lead. Reuben's sign is the man in the uh, Aquarius, if you will. Typically, visualize the man with a pitcher. Okay. Oh, by the way, I'll just take these in order. Judah is the lion. And by the way, the standard has as its colors the three stones on the second row of the high priest's breastplate from Ezekiel 28, for those of you interested in that. Okay? Issachar and Zebulun were both brothers of Leah. They were brothers in the sense of having the same mother, Leah. They're, they're, they're on the one side. Okay. Now we're over at Reuben. He, his standard had the colors of the first row of the high priest's breastplate. Um, and his sign was the man. Simeon, who is the brother of Reuben, also of Leah, in other words, his sign was Pisces. Gad was the son of Zilpah, and um, uh, his sign was Aries. So we have Pisces, Aquarius, and Aries on the south side, using the zodiac labels. But they all camp under the sign of Reuben, which is the man. Aquarius in the zodiacal sense, but for your purpose and mine, the man. Let's move down to the, now we're on east, south, now we're on the west side. And here we have, oh, by the way, here's something else interesting. The Levites are not around the camp, but they have a sign, the sign of Libra, which you and I know one way. It's original, we know it, we know it's original. By the way, one of the great links for the unraveling of these is the Arabic names. In many cases, we don't have the original Hebrew names of the stars, but we do have the Arabic. 
because the um, Bedouin and others on the desert use the stars heavily for navigation. And they've preserved their ancient names of the stars. And from the Arabic, we can get a clue as to what the original names were. And Libra's, I forget what it says in the Arabic, but it stands for the altar. The altar. And incidentally, the first magnitude, the, 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 the brightest stars in that also describe the altar that's deficient, I mean, excuse me, the offering that's deficient and the offering that covereth are all under the altar, the, the sign of the heavens altar, which we know is Libra. But that was the sign of the tribe of of the Levites. Interesting. Moving on. Ephraim. Coming around now to the... We're, uh, we moved around to the west side. Ephraim. His colors were the fourth row of the breastplate. His standard was the ox. Now, Ephraim and Manasseh were regarded as the two horns of Taurus the bull. Okay, the two tribes, uh, the two, uh, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. So those two tribes have the, tr the standard of Joseph, really, which is the, which we know as Taurus, but Ephraim, who is the lead here of the three, of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. Benjamin is Gemini, and Ephraim and Manasseh together are Taurus, but they, 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 they muster under what? The tribal standard of the bull or the ox, if you will. Okay, we'll move around. The last side that's remaining is Dan, Naphtali, and Asher. Dan is um, originally a serpent, but later changed to an eagle. Okay, his color is the third row of the breastplate. So we have the four rows of the breastplate colors represented in the four sides of the tribal standards. Uh, the eagle substituted for the serpent. The serpent originally from Genesis 49, but later changed to the eagle. For obvious reasons, the serpent doesn't wear well. Um, Asher is uh, Sagittarius, the archer. But, uh, these are the sons, of, uh, he's the son of Zilpah. And Naphtali is uh, Capricorn, is the goat. Okay, now, what am I getting at? Why do I go through all this? Well, first of all, I want you, if, if you study the throne of God, it appears, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1 and 10, and Revelation 4. Each time we encounter a description of the throne of God, we see it, the, it's surrounded by cherubim, and the cherubim always have four faces, likened unto an eagle, a man, a lion, and an ox. Okay? The same four standards that the nation Israel used to muster their army. So the first thing, whether they knew it or not, because I don't think they'd read Ezekiel yet, not in Moses' day, right? They hadn't read Isaiah the seraphim or cherubim, the seraphim there, or the cherubim later, or the living ones in Revelation that John saw. We always, they're just a little different, but they always have that in common, these four faces. Now, those of you that remember our study of the book of Matthew know that the four Gospels can clearly be identified by those four faces. And we have Matthew, who is preoccupied with the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, okay, and that 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 the, you know the, the kingship, and he deals with the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's why Matthew presents him both in his language, the first miracle, the most sayings, the most frequent words. The whole theme of Matthew is to present him as the son, you know the 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 the, uh, the, the son of David, the the Messiah. Mark is interested in the suffering servant. No pedigree of a servant. There's, he's the only one without a genealogy. The other three have genealogies. John's is a little mystical, but it's, they all have genealogies. 
the servant. The ox is the classical beast of burden or service. Luke. Luke couldn't care less about Matthew's Messiahship. He was interested in Jesus as the son of man. He was a physician, takes the genealogy from Adam on to show that he's son of man. And his his gospels, his emphasis, his first miracles, uh, there's 17 different things of each. If you map this all out, clearly the theme is that he's, the symbol is the man. The last, of course, is John, the son of God, and the deity that, that, that would leave you with the eagle and so forth. So it's interesting that the four gospels echo or replicate this theme that we find in Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1 and 10, and Revelation 4 as the throne of God, which here in Numbers is anticipated by the standards and the way the army. Not through yet. Not through yet. Let's go back to these numbers. You know, we went through, we just read chapters 1 and 2 and went through all these tedious little numbers, okay? And the fact that Reuben was 46,500 may have been lost on you. I suspect not many of you got any spiritual significance from that, okay? Simeon, 49.3, and Gad, 46.650, fine. We go through all these numbers. They add up to 603,550. Terrific. Back up a minute, my friends. We just got through in the next chapter discovering that these groups of three clustered as camps, right? So Reuben, Simeon, and Gad... If you add them up, are 142,450, terrific. Judah, with Issachar and Zebulun, add up to 186,400. Ephraim, 40,500, Manasseh, 32,2, and Benjamin, 35,4. These are all in there, you can think about it. That's 108,100. Dan is 62,7, Asher, 41,5, and Naphtali, 53,4, for a total of 157,600. Well, okay, great. Now I want you to join me in your mind's eye. We're going to get into a chopper, and we're going to take ourselves. It would kind of alert Moses; would be a little freaked out, I suppose. Well, nothing would freak out Moses, I don't think. Anyway, we're we're going to go, and the camp of Israel is down there, right? As we fly in our chopper and we look down there, we see the tabernacle, and we see the, the priests and Moses on the east side, and the, and the three families of the Levites around it. Terrific! And here are the camps of 600,000 guys, right, in these three camps. First of all, the camps are not equal size. The camp of Judah the east is 186,000. That's more than a fourth of 603, 186. Okay. Opposite, there's the 106,000, 180, excuse me, 186,400 of Judah, his camp. As we, that's on the east side. If we look on the west side, we have the smallest group. The largest group on the east, the smallest group, that's Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, adding up to 108. So there's 186 versus 108. See, it's smaller, right? If we look to the south and the north, they're both about the same time, 142,000, 157,000. Not that dissimilar. But you recognize they're instructed. Now they're, they're rabbinical, right? These guys are... Jewish, they take this very strictly. You know, they split hairs on these things. If they're going to camp, if the tribe of Judah is going to camp on the east side of the tabernacle, they're not going to envelop it, are they? Build yourself a little diagram when you get home and make, you know, put the tabernacle roughly 75 by 150 feet and then give yourself some room for the Gershonites and Gergesites and Maris and make yourself a little thing. Then take... 186,400 people, let them camp to the 
east. And what you discover is there's just so far that they can be wide, and the rest of them go deep, right? So they become a long camp, right? And when you're in this chopper going over, you see the camp of Israel. What's the shape of the camp? It's a cross. It's a cross. With the camp of Judah on the east being the largest, the north being the smallest, and the other two roughly equal size. So if you were flying in a chopper over the camp of Israel in the book of Numbers, assuming you could do that in your mind's eye, you would see down there a map of the throne of God as described in the book of Revelation, and you would see none other than something that's very, very Gentile in its look, the cross that saves us all. Praise God. Fun book, book of Numbers. I think we're going to have fun with this. We're just getting warmed up. Book of Numbers has got a, a lot of surprises. And uh, this is just kind of fun stuff tonight. As we go, we're going to discover that God has some very fascinating lessons. This is, this is his boot camp. This is his training ground. What Israel was doing there was learning, painfully perhaps, but learning. They learned about a lot of interesting things. They learned about the bread of life. We're going to learn all kinds of things about the bread of life. Not from John 7, but from Numbers. We're going to learn about the water of life from the book of Numbers. Moses learned some things that he's got him in penalty box for a bit, at least, until Revelation 11, perhaps. Um, it's going to be an interesting book. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to get into this brazen serpent. Uh, and what all that means, and why it's, uh, you know, why on the medical profession do you have two snakes, not one, and all that stuff. We'll get into that when we get there. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Book of Numbers. Part of the Torah, perhaps the most venerated portion of Scripture among the Jews. And for good reason. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we just praise you that your handiwork is so visible to us every time we go outside and look up at the night sky that you have gone to such extremes to present to us your handiwork and your glory, the glory of your redemption, not just your creation. Father, we just thank you. We thank you too, Father, for the privilege of discovery that you put these things here for our learning. We would ask you, Father, to draw us with a hunger for the things of you, that you would increase in us an appetite for these things, that you would draw us into those paths of study and inquiry that would cause us to discover those things which you have for us that would uniquely elicit in us that response which you desire of us, that you might show us, each and every one, that unique, specific ministry that you have for us. Give us sensitivity and response and resolve, above all, the strength through the power of your Spirit, to the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we commit all these things.